0: On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and welcome to Tax Planning under the 199 Cap A regulations. Let's jump in and talk about an overview and a review of Section 199 Cap A, and I'll talk a little bit about the regulations. Keep in mind, the deduction under the statute equals 20% of qualified business income, so that's a term we have to decide exactly what does that mean, how is it defined? It's generally available to the owners of pass-through businesses including real estate, but real estate needs to rise to the level of a trade or business. The deduction is limited for specified service trades or businesses, and it's also limited by the business owner's taxable income. But who's eligible? Owners of sole proprietorships and LLCs, sole owners of rental real estate if it rises to a trade or business, estates and trusts are eligible, S corporations are eligible, as far as their owners and partnership. The partners are also eligible, so all qualify, but the computation differs. Remember, if you're a married couple, the cutoff is 315. If you're a single person, the cutoff is 157. For non-grantor trusts, the cutoff will also be 157. And keep in mind, children subject to the kiddie tax have their own threshold of 157. Generally, for a service or non-service business, if your taxable income is less than $315,000, the deduction is going to be 20% of QBI. If you're between 315 dollars and 415, there is a limitation for non-service business and for service businesses, the deduction will be phased out. If taxable income is greater than 415, dollars You do have to start doing wage and capital testing, which a lot of planning will evolve around, and you're going to have to worry about, once you're over 415, if you're in a service business, there is no deduction. The heart of planning is managing taxable income and the wage capital limitations. I do have a chart out there, which all of you should have handy, um, and... It's been published broadly, but if you do not have that chart, certainly send me an email and I'll I'll get that out to you. Just walks you through basically what I just surmised. So it's just one of my flowcharts. Remember, if you have an income deficit, when you have an income deficit, that means your income is less than your QBI and your deduction is going to be based on income. So if QBI, if my income from my practice was 200 but my taxable income was 175, I'd only get 20% of the 175. Basically, this is this again. We're calling an income deficit. Now, when you have an income deficit, part of the planning will be perhaps for some people to do Roth conversions, because if you could, if you did in that case a $25,000 Roth conversion, only 80% of it would, in essence, be taxable. So, when you're over 415, if you have a non-service trade or business then your deduction you have to compare it to wages and to capital. So you look to 50% of wages or 25% of W-2 wages plus 2.5% of the unadjusted basis of your property immediately after acquisition. That's a little bit new in the regulations. Um, Keep in mind this deduction is phased in from 315 to 415 and it's for specified service businesses The entire deduction is phased out from 315 to 415. It's kind of a draconian calculation, but it's what we have to work through. Qualified property. So if I had a building worth a million dollars, I'd multiply that by 2.5%, forget the land, $25,000. If my QBI amount was 100 and I took that times 20% and I ended up with 20,000, I would be able to take the entire $20,000 deduction. So keep in mind your basis is equal to basis immediately after acquisition, not adjusted for depreciation, including bonus depreciation, not adjusted for the 179 deduction, and very clearly under the regs, not adjusted for 743 or 754 elections. Keep in mind a specified service business is primarily the practice of health, law, accounting, actuarial science, performing arts, consulting, athletics, financial services, brokerage services, and that is very detailed in the regulations. So that is extremely detailed in the regulations. Everyone goes through that. Now when we get into partnerships, if you have two people sharing a partnership and then when they do wage and capital testing, they are going to share their QBI, their wages, and their basis in making all these calculations. Big picture, uh, no differences for the AMT, this is neutral on the AMT. Unfortunately, the 199 cap A deduction doesn't apply for net purposes or for SE tax, so it doesn't apply for either of those. So now these, this set of regulations, six different sections of the regulations have been issued and we'll talk a little bit about that in other classes. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that today. Remember, this whole deduction terminates on December 31st, 2025 right now. When you're managing this limitation, the ways to manage it primarily will be by reducing your income or positioning yourself with extra capital or extra wages. When you're trying to reduce your income a big part of the planning will be how do I reduce my income to be lower? And what we've identified are really four or five different things Um, The first thing that we we clearly identified are using defined contribution plans or defined benefit plans, oil and gas investments, bonus depreciation in Section 179 expensing, plus potentially, because it's based on taxable income, you can also reduce your taxable income through charitable giving. So there are a lot of good ideas out there. They mostly surround reducing taxable income. Maybe it's through tax-free bonds, life insurance and annuities, oil and gas, real estate investments, which generate cash flow without income, uh, charitable gifts, I'll come back to that, and maybe shifting some of your capital to taxpayers with lower taxable income or over to trusts. These are all going to be things we think about when we're putting this together. A big thing to keep in mind when you're doing planning on this is interest is more valuable to an entity that doesn't receive the 199 Cap A deduction. So these regulations were issued on August 8, 2018 by the U.S. Treasury Department, um, plenty of statutory authority for these regulations, very, very little doubt on that. And again, there's, in, the, in the statute itself, we counted eight different places where the Secretary of the Treasury is authorized for the regulations. Now the regulations go through operational rules, they determine W-2 wages on an basis. They spent a lot of time in the Dash 3 regs talking about qualified REIT dividends and qualified publicly traded partnership income. Section 4 of the regulations is actually one of the better parts where we talk about the ability to aggregate businesses for the wage and capital testing. And then section Dash 5 of the regs covers specified service businesses including the pack and crack strategies. Then we talk about six relevant pass-through entities. And then A bonus, they issued regulations under 643F-1. That is tax avoidance for multiple trusts. They did not crush all those ideas. Let's talk a little bit about what's left. Now, for most, for CPAs, I think CPAs have to understand this um, front-to-back, stem-to-stern. And um, what we're really talking about here is... Where are we going on a forward basis, okay? Now, for the, for the lawyers, I think there is so much here, and very smart lawyers will be able to use this to fill in some of the work that maybe has evaporated a little bit because of the higher exemptions. But I think every trust and probate administration that you look at, you have to say, does 199 come in, and are we doing anything wrong with the timing of our funding where we might reduce or Um, otherwise mess up our availability of 199 cap A deduction. The big thing that many people have been talking about, including my friend Steve Oceans, is planning with trusts. If you have 15 grandchildren, can you create a separate trust for each of them and their descendants and put yourself in a better spot for purposes of 199 cap A? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. There's no doubt about that. Aggregation of business interests, this will be a big thing, and I think to some extent when you're helping with someone's estate planning, you do want to see how these aggregations are going to fall into place, especially keep in mind, and we're going to talk about this, I touched on it a little bit, but when, you, when somebody dies with an LLC that owns real estate, they would normally get a step-up in basis on the, on the LLC itself, which is still going to happen, that's 1014 of the code. And then what happens is under Section 743, you're allowed to make an election under 754. And that increases the inside basis. Under these regulations, it's extremely clear to everyone that we are not allowed, we are not allowed to use the 754 adjustment for purposes of calculating the capital test. if your client had a building worth a million dollars with a basis of zero inside an LLC, for the 706, you'd put a million dollars on the 706. Now, we can talk about uh, minority interest and marketability. Just forget that for a second. You'd put a million dollars on the 706, but you would, and you'd still take a step up for every other income tax purpose, but you wouldn't get a step up for purposes of 199 cap A. That does not seem theoretically correct to me, but intelligent people can obviously be on opposite sides of a coin on something like that. But notwithstanding that that's theoretically flawed, um, I think what we have is that we're going to have to look at different planning. For example, um, if my brother and I each if were both 85 years old and we each own half of an LLC that owns a big building near Lambeau Field. And basis is zero, but when when one of us dies, we're going to get a step up on the outside basis um, and make a 754 election. We'd have to think, do we spin that building out of the LLC and immediately Um, drop a 50% interest into an LLC that we own 100% of that would be a disregarded entity. I think they'll be planning like that. I wouldn't do anything like that too quickly here. I'd give it a month or two to see um, where things are going to evolve, but I think that's going to be something we talk about. I want to, that's just really came to light, so that's a big thing. And I think lawyers have to be at the tip of the spear on that. Um, Keep in mind, Probably once we get smarter, we'll also be looking at for people that have NOLs or capital loss carry-forwards, can we do some recognition events that would, on a tax-free basis, let us absorb those NOLs and put us in a position where we could increase the basis of property. Now, um, 1031 exchanges, you will come away from a 1031 exchange with, two, with a dual basis, basis on the new property and a carryover basis from the old property. Again, I think this area of a choice of entity is going to be a big one. Um, people will be coming to their lawyers and CPAs saying, you know, do I want to be an S-corp, a C-corp, or an LLC? And that's a, a much more complicated decision now that we have 199 cap A. And that's something that we, we have to be very cognizant of. Some businesses may want to put a C-corp sitting next to an LLC or an S-corp. Now, here's the, the lay of the land here. If your income is below three hundred fifteen thousand dollars, it certainly looks like you'd be better in an LLC because then you're going to take the LLC income multiplied by twenty percent for your deduction. If you had a business making three hundred thousand, your deduction would be twenty percent of three hundred or sixty thousand dollars. If that was an S corp and you paid yourself a wage of one twenty-five, your QBI deduction would be based on the earnings of one twenty-five. You, you'd cut your deduction um by by 512 so it would be you you wouldn't want to do that now if the interesting thing though is that flips when you go over 315 because the llc itself will have no wages and you won't be able to do any wage testing only capital testing so i think it's very important when people come to you as a lawyer um, everything you thought you knew about entity selection has probably been turned upside down a little bit. So I think the smart thing is to get with the client's CPAs and try to figure out, okay, what entity do we want to use here? Um, we also have to remember that there was a lot of talking, and this will be my final point, uh, there was a lot of talking about the crack and pack strategies. Uh, those have largely been done away with under these regulations, okay? So the regulations go out of their way to say, that if you have a law firm you can't spend your administrative help into another entity and build that time back to the law firm and then hope to take the 199 cap A deduction at the law firm level. So there's there's a lot going on here. Um, We're finding all this to create many opportunities um, and what I'm hoping to do in, in the months to come is pull more and more of this together and we'll continue to do podcasts as this evolves. On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler discussing tax planning under 199 CAPE. Thank you for joining us today.